Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn daughter said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. A son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we encounter a difficult and challenging passage of Scripture. And as we pray every Sunday, we need it today that you would give us your Holy Spirit to illumine this word of God to us. Jesus, thank you that you have said Scripture cannot be broken. And so we trust not some but all of the Scriptures and also look to Jesus yourself as you are the center of the story. So as Brittany mentioned at the beginning of the service, we come here this morning from different places. Would we yet find our home in Jesus by faith, the one given for us and for our salvation through his crucifixion and resurrection? Would we know your welcome, your encouragement, your challenge, your warning, and your peace here this morning, Lord Jesus? Do a good work now, we pray in your name and for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite comedies over the past 20 years is Arrested Development. I know that a few of you at least have seen Arrested Development. It appeared on Fox Network in the 2000s. I recommend the first three seasons there. I don't really recommend the later seasons that came on Netflix, but a really, really funny show. I hear it's going off Netflix soon, so you might want to try to catch it if you can. And one of the great things about Arrested Development is it has the series of running jokes that occur and then recur and then recur just throughout the whole series. And I was talking to a friend yesterday. When it comes to dramas, I'm getting a little tired of the callback where in a dramatic movie or show, you'll have one character say something towards the beginning of the show or movie, but then another character says that same line dramatically towards the end of the show or movie, and then the audience goes, oh wait, that line was said before. That's fake and lazy writing. Like People don't do that in real life, say other people's lines, and instead of doing the work for dramatic payoff, you're just copying and pasting. However, with comedies, I love a good running joke. And one of them is this. After one of the characters in Arrested Development does something wrong or makes a mistake, 
that character will say, I have made a huge mistake. And it's really funny every time because in Arrested Development, multiple characters make catastrophically, cataclysmically bad decisions with immense disasters that ensue. And then they, it, yeah, everybody knows you've made a huge mistake, but then the character says that and we get our schadenfreude on after that. That's taking pleasure and other people's pain. This is your pastor speaking. You should not do that in real life, okay? You should not take pleasure in other people's pain, but when it comes to fictional characters, have a party. Be fruitful and multiply. Just enjoy it, and also Dallas Cowboys. Those are the two categories of people for whom schadenfreude is just fine. So, I've made a huge mistake, but now let's bring it closer to home. For how many of us here in the room or watching online, is that true in our lives? I have made a huge mistake. How often have you done that? Something, and I think for many of us, something that we've decided, an action that we've taken, that has issued forth in life-altering and life-damaging consequences. I have made a huge mistake. And I think in some of those cases, we might not have recognized at the time that this choice we made, this decision we made, this action that we took, really was that bad. Sometimes we recognize it instantaneously, but we can't take it back. But then with those huge mistakes in our lives, that's when we'll put it on the mental repeat loop in our heads and say, why, oh why, oh why did I do that? That was calamitous for me or for my family or for my work or something else. If only I could do it differently. And maybe with some of those huge mistake moments, you have dreams where it plays out in the dream that that mistake didn't happen. And you're like, wow, this is awesome. But then you wake up again and the reality settles over you. I have made a huge mistake. But then in addition to that, what about the small ones? What about the small mistakes that you and I have made? The thing about small mistakes is that over time, when you rinse, wash, and repeat, those small mistakes can yet have huge negative consequences for you down the line. They accumulate. Do we even recognize those small mistakes when they're happening? Maybe it's with our health. Okay, doctor said, eat less sugars, eat less salts. But it's a cheat day. And then the cheat days happen more frequently. Hey, you should drink less alcohol. Tomorrow would be a great day for me to start doing that. You know, you should watch your weight or whatever it is. A small decision, small decision, small decision, small decision. Or financially. Okay, we're in a little bit of a tight situation right now financially. I know that the general rubric is don't get yourself into credit card debt, but I'll just do it a little bit here and a little bit here and a little bit here. But then you start to realize, hey, wait a second. Uh, I can get more stuff if I charge a little bit more on my credit card. Small mistakes, huge consequences. Or even beyond that, spiritually. When it comes to following Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus. Yeah, I used to read my Bible a lot. 
but I missed a day here, I missed a day there, and I just kind of got out of the habit over time. Like, yeah, I used to pay more attention to making sure that I would get a good night of sleep on Saturday night so that I'd be ready for church the next morning, but, you know, out to 11 becomes out to 12, up to 1, binging at 2, and there you are. All those little slides. Or, yeah, I've been in a lot of home meetings. I don't need to do it this year. I'm just kind of tired of it. Would you recognize if you were making those little, small mistake choices right now or not? Or are maybe they occurring and you don't even know it? But here it is for me, as I get a little bit older and a little bit older and a little bit older, the danger that I perceive of living a life full of regret is actually very real. I'll think about what I've done, where I'm going, try to do better, but then just become paralyzed, and then meanwhile, I keep messing up. Whether you're younger in this room or older in this room, how much confidence do you actually hold that you will not go through your life with accumulating regret? Or is that just how it is and how it's going to be? We have from Genesis 19 another strange passage, Lot and its daughters. And to me, the takeaway here is this is the last time in the book of Genesis. We've been patiently going through the book of Genesis here on a lot of Sunday mornings at Liberty Collingswood. This is the last story with Lot. Lost, Lot's last word. Lot's last call. But I think as we wrap up the story of Lot, this text is encouraging us to think long term. Don't just think about now. Think long term about your life, about life, the universe, and everything. And there's both warning in this passage and hope for this passage if and when, if and when, we make mistakes, both huge and small. And so two pieces, two parts for the rest of this morning. We're going to first look at Lot, then we're going to look at Lot's daughters. When we look at Lot, we're going to get warning, and then when we look at Lot's daughters, we're going to get hope. So when we look at Lot and receive a warning, two parts to kick off this little mini section, why we don't think long-term and why we should. Why don't we, as 2023 people, think long-term like we should? Making some generalizations here, but the generalizations have some grounding in fact. We are not conditioned culturally to think long-term anymore. There's a few different reasons for that. One, pessimism and hopelessness. Oh yeah, you want me to think long-term? But that's really depressing. And I have mentioned here on Sunday morning, and there are more and more statistics everywhere, the younger generations of today are the most pessimistic and the most hopeless about the future than any generation on record. Is life going to get better? No. So why think long-term? Or there are so many different ways where we just anticipate disaster, relationally. I continue to read and hear more about how there's an epidemic of toxic relationships and we just cut people out of our life. And it is that pendulum swing that we've talked about so far. If in previous generations, maybe people stayed in relationships of various kinds for various reasons way too long, now it's the opposite. 
where if there's any little bit of friction, oh, this parent has cut off this child, this child has cut off this parent, this coworker doesn't speak to that coworker anymore, these two siblings used to be very close, they don't even talk anymore, family reunion, no way, because I've cut off all of these relationships. We're pessimistic and hopeless. Or politically, we have people at Liberty Collingswood that are on the right side or the left side of various political art of aisles, but how many of us, when we think about the current American political scene, are like, this is going to be great? Or environmental disasters. We are becoming desensitized to the rapidity at which our news feeds are slammed with crazy disasters going on all around the world. So we don't want to think long term. Also, another set of reasons, we are conditioned to be now people. Live in the moment, no matter what you do. Just be a now person, whether that's technology or news cycle. We're just bombarded by the now. The cover of the newest issue of the Atlantic ma magazine, the title of the lead article, is we are already living in the metaverse. And the author of this article talks about how we don't really think that we're living in the metaverse yet because not a ton of us have like the big goggles. Maybe some of us do, but by and large, the goggles and the spending a ton of time in VR has not been adopted as quickly as a company like Meta would have hoped. But this article comes back and, say, and says, okay, even if that level of metaverse has not been attained by many of us, what people generations ago used to foretell and warn about when it came to being super plugged in, Friends, that day has already arrived. It goes like this. In the future, we were warned by earlier writers, we will surrender ourselves to our entertainment. We will become so distracted and dazed by our fictions that we'll lose our sense of what is real. We will make our escape so comprehensive that we cannot free ourselves from them. The result will be a populace that forgets how to think, how to empathize with one another, even how to govern and be governed. The future has already arrived. We live our lives, willingly or not, within the metaverse. But each invitation to be entertained reinforces an impulse to seek diversion whenever possible and to avoid tedium at all costs. We're living in it now. We are not conditioned to think long-term. And then there's a cultural ethos too where you need to say yes to all of your appetites all the time. Whatever your heart desires, whatever your heart wants, you go and do that now, and you are being disloyal to, to yourself if you tell yourself no when it comes to any of those heart dispositions or any of those attitudes. And of course, that's not the whole story, and cultural commentators have realized, for example, that mid-20th century to now, sex and stomach have flipped, where back then, previous century, the idea was, yeah, your, your sexual desires should be curbed, and there should be good, healthy limits on those things, but people didn't think about nutrition. Eat whatever you want. What do we have today? It is exactly flipped, where every sexual impulse you should be free to act on, but the food Nazis are coming for you. Don't eat that, don't eat that, don't eat that, don't eat that. So every generation has its own set of legalisms and licenses. But all that is to say, we don't think long-term like we should, but we should. So if we don't tend to think long-term, why should we? Lot. He is an object lesson of a negative example 
of why we should think about where we're going in our lives. And if this is the last story of the character Lot, we've seen him for a lot of chapters. I think we first encounter him in the genealogy of Genesis chapter 11. He's the nephew of Abraham. And if this is the culmination here, I think this story is asking us, take a look at the ark, the life of Lot. And I think you would have to conclude that this is a chronicle in Genesis of a life lived poorly. Over and over again, it's probably pushing it too far to say that Lot is a major villain in Genesis, although he has his moments. I think it's much easier to say Lot's a major idiot and just consistently does the wrong thing. So, for example, when with Abraham's company, they move into the promised land around Genesis chapter 13, it's Lot that says, oh, this land over here, outside the promised land, looks much, looks much better. Let me go towards the valley, towards Sodom over here. Then Abraham has to rescue Lot in the next chapter. Lot loses all of his possessions. But one way or another, when we get back to Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19, before this passage, Lot is back there again, and he behaves horribly in that story. He is under-hospitable to the angels. He is under-hospitable to his own daughters. He does he makes an unspeakably vile offer about them, and he's not taken seriously by anybody in that story. His own family members, he argues with the angels and his townspeople, they, they, they just don't, he's, he's a bum. And so when we get to this coda, this last word on Lot, we see all of that breaking bad coming home to roost. And here's the end an accumulation of bad behavior and negative choices. His end is very similar to every step of the way. Where do we find him? We find him in a cave and afraid. Verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. There's irony there, because if you, if you were here last week, when the angels are telling Lot, Hey, you should probably get out of here about an hour ago. Why are you still here? And the uh, angels say, go to the hills. Lot says, no, I don't want to go to the hills. Just let me go to this little town Zoar instead. And the angels say, sure. But by this point, he's back in the hills where first he didn't want to go, but he's afraid. It does not reflect well on him. And then you have this incident with the two daughters, and we'll talk about this again. We'll circle back to it when we go to the second section talking about the, the daughters, but this is ancestral sexual assault, I think. But very interestingly here in this passage, it's stressed twice in verses 33 and 35 that Lot had no idea about it. Let's read them again. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. He did not know. And then again, verse 35. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. You can go two ways with this, and this is what the commentators do. You could go, and there, there's no majority opinion here, but I bet you can guess which way I'll go. One side says, oh, this is interesting. It's stressed in the text multiple times that Lot didn't know what was going on. Look at this. This is the one time where Lot is innocent, and he didn't do anything wrong here. Finally, he's getting with it. Or the other interpretation says, yeah, but he's still kind of a dope and a dupe. How could he not know? This is very standard behavior for Lot. Exploitable, easy to manipulate, 
a buffoon who's just blown around. I take that latter view. Lot is still cast in a negative light here. And there's a contrast in later on chapters in Genesis. The author of Genesis goes out of his way to say, on the other hand, Abraham lived and died well. For example, Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Or in chapter 25, Abraham breathed his last and died in good old age, an old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. This last word on Lot does not get that type of send-off. So upshot, let's be very practical here, don't be Lot. Try not to be like that guy. And understand, thinking long-term, that over time, consequences accumulate. I have made a huge mistake. I have made a series of small mistakes. Are you able to trace the arc of where those mistakes have gone and are going, be warned. Be warned. And I think a good attitude, an antidote for not being like Lot is simply to obey Jesus, to be an obedient follower of him. That doesn't guarantee, you know, just trying to obey Jesus all the time, that doesn't mean you'll bat a thousand on it, and we need the Holy Spirit's help for this. But stay within the will of God obey. And it's kind of like this. Among other things, Christian obedience is a way of saying, I trust that God wants what's best for me. If I'm going to choose to be curved and obey according to what God has revealed, like, I'm going to trust that that's good for me. So God, even though going in this direction would feel really, really good, be gratifying, and even like all my friends and coworkers are saying, this is exactly the direction I would go. I should go. But over here, obedience is even unpopular and weird. But God, I trust you with my mental self. So I'll go here and not there. God, I trust you with my emotional self, with my mental health self. I will go here and not there. God, I trust you with my physical self. So I will go here and not there. God, I trust you with my sexual self. So I will go here and not there. I trust you with my financial self. So I will go here and not there and so on. Take time to do an inventory. What do you need to stop and be warned? In this Lenten season at our Ash Wednesday service, one of the things that I talked about towards the end of the service, and it was a charge or a challenge for Lent, what might you... Put down what might you take up and how might you go low. In the liturgical season of Lent, celebrated around the world, including here at Liberty Collingswood, that is a great time to get serious about Christian obedience in whatever way God is calling you to, and you sense God's invitation, you see it in the scriptures, to actually get some first downs and move in that direction and be different. Or else we're warned that we may fall into habits that make us look a lot like Lot. Now let's talk about the daughters. And we actually get hope from the daughters' perspective here. Commentators will say with this passage, Genesis 19, verses 30 to 38, what's in this passage is very interesting, but also what's missing or what's absent from this story, also very interesting. What's missing? 
what does God think about what the daughters are doing here? Is there a divine approval or a divine disapproval of what's going on? Now, we need to be some nuanced thinkers, so bear with me here for a second. There's a couple different levels. At one level, no-brainer, incestual sexual assault is a sin. It's bad. Don't do that. But then it's interesting at the same time that we don't see that divine perspective when in so many other stories in the scriptures, you see exactly that. So some commentators wonder, okay, should they have done that? No. But is there some aspect here where Lot gave that horrible offer of his daughters to the men of Sodom? Is this a measure of revenge being exacted by these daughters upon their father that did that horrible thing to them? Are they regaining some measure of their own agency as a coda to that story? Is that possible? I think it is. And very often when we don't see God loved this or God did not love this, kind of the, the breaking the fourth wall where the biblical author says what God's opinion is about what's going on, one of the typical tells in biblical narratives is you look at the consequences. And if the consequences of the actions of a certain character are bad, typically in Bible stories, that's a subtle way of the author saying, now you see the divine disapproval because bad stuff started to happen. But in this case, that doesn't. Thinking at multiple levels and with some nuance. But kind of interesting, this where's God question is interesting here, and it's kind of odd, where is God in the story? But isn't that kind of typical for our own lives? If you're a follower of Jesus, sometimes do you feel like, okay, trying to obey, trying to do the right thing, but I'm just not seeing God. I'm not feeling God. Where, I'm not seeing God. Where, where is he? Is God showing up? Is God doing anything? Is all of this just in my own head? But a story like this gives us some reassurance that God is at work even when we don't feel it. God is at work even when we don't see it. And if you're somebody that's skeptical of spiritual realities or still putting some of those pieces together, I wouldn't blame you if you said, like, I don't see it, I don't feel it, I don't see the evidence of God being at work in the world, and in fact the opposite when you connect some dots. I would simply say at this point, that the Bible also agrees that we don't necessarily see God every day at work. But we can trust that he is. And so if you are a follower of Jesus and you occasionally wonder, where is God in all of this? Don't freak out. Because the scriptures say that you can trust God beyond what you can see. And that's been called providence. At the beginning of our worship folder, our reflection quote comes from one of our standards, the Heidelberg Catechism. One of my favorite question and answers from this 500-year-old, give or take, Q&A. What do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. We can have hope because in Jesus, we trust beyond what we can see. And that's true even of our sin. 
Did the daughters sin against Lot in this story? I'll say it again. Yes, of course they did. But there are good consequences that come from it. The end of the story here, verses 36 to 38, thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Peoples in the Old Testament period come from this story, and there's no negative judgment put upon them from this story. And in fact, at key points later in the scriptures, God protects the Ammonites and the Moabites. In the book of Deuteronomy, later on, four books after this, as the wandering through the desert is recounted, we say, or we see, And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given it to the people of Lot for a possession. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. Or even far later in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament story, the prophet Jeremiah says there will be restoration, but afterward I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. For as much of a major idiot Lot is, he's still part of God's covenant family. And God is at work providentially for blessing, even in the midst of sin. Because God is a good God, God is in the business of bringing good from evil. In my Bible reading plan that restarts at the beginning of every year, I'm just finished. Uh, this morning was starting Exodus. I just finished the book of Genesis. And we'll see if we get that far here at Liberty Collegeswood, getting all the way through Genesis. But the last... Starting with chapter 37, I think, it goes all the way to the end, chapter 50. If we have all of these characters quickly coming on the scene and leaving, the story of Joseph takes up like a third of the book, just this one character. And if you know something about the story of Joseph, he's the favored son of Jacob. He's left for dead by his brothers, beaten up, taken to Egypt. But then in a reversal, there's a famine, and Jacob, who rises to power in Egypt, welcomes his family into Egypt so that they can survive and be given bread and sustenance. And then Jacob reveals himself and says, I'm the one that you tried to kill. And at the end of the story, this is what Jacob tells his brothers. That as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Does that mean that we have license to sin or disobey? No, that would be a misapplication. But we can yet trust if and when we do, and we make those huge mistakes where it's not, oh, I just wasn't thinking, or I, I slipped up, it was an accident. Sometimes our huge mistakes is I deliberately did an evil thing. That was me. I can't pass the buck to anybody else. Providence means that God takes our good choices and our bad choices, our good behavior and our bad behavior. And we can trust that God will use them for good all the way to and through the cross of Jesus Christ. Was that a bad action? Was Jesus acted sinfully against? Absolutely. But one of the most mind-blowing little things that you're ever going to see in the scriptures is something that Peter says in the first sermon in the history of the church in the book of Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Both are true. Peter says to his audience, many of you crucified and killed Jesus. Yet at the same time, Peter's words, not mine, this occurred according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Where God planned this redemption through and through. All the way to the cross, where Jesus paid for your and my sins upon himself and rose to conquer them again. So we're warned and we have hope from the same source, namely the cross of Jesus Christ. Be warned. And the cross says for all time, this is how bad sin is. Jesus had to die if there was going to be any hope of salvation and grace for any of us schmoes. What we said as Eric Mitchell and I did the imposition of ashes on people, from dust you are, from dust you shall return. Mourn your sins that cost Jesus his life. Repent and believe the gospel. Do that this Lenten season. But also grow in hope. Because the cross says, for all of your huge mistakes and small, for all of your huge sins and small, Jesus has canceled that debt. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that means that God is constantly at work to draw down the negative accumulation of your and my bad behaviors. And has taken even those things and is working them out for good. And if you're not sure where you are with Jesus, believe in Jesus. In part because you're able to know that if and as you mess up, as we all do, there is yet hope, both now and in the future. The cross of Jesus Christ says that your mistakes are not the last word about you. The cross of Jesus says that your sins, your mess, your junk, your backstory, none of those things are the last word about you. Instead, you receive words like these instead. Loved, forgiven, cherished, promised. Both now and all the way into the future. And this is where we'll wrap up. Present and future. In Jesus, take courage to be able to look your bad choices, past and present, in the eye. And you don't need to be conquered by them. And if you look at your life and see damage that you've caused you can yet pray that God would redeem. God redeem. That's what the cross of Jesus is all about. If you're a follower of Jesus and have been for a little while, you probably have your personal hall of fame with people of faith, men and women probably older than you, when you look at them and say, wow, as a follower of Jesus, I want to be like them when I grow up. One of them is Cliff, who is at the church I pastored when we lived in Texas. Cliff was a peanut farmer working the hard, desert-like Texas ground. And you might wonder, is it easy or hard to work the hard, desert-like West Texas ground? I'll put it this way. 200 years ago, the first farmer that worked, the peanut farmer that worked the desert-like hard Texas ground, shortly after he started, probably said, I have made a huge mistake. 
the cliff. A godly man. Had his own share of things that had gone wrong in his life and had his own share of wrongs. One of his favorite verses came from a minor prophet in the Old Testament, Joel. I will restore to you the years that the swarm... This is God promising his people. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent to you. What a great verse. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. And I can't tell you the number of times I was praying individually with Cliff or we were at a home meeting, praying together in one context or another, and over and over again, Lord, would you restore to us the years that the locust has eaten? That's a good prayer. And then the promise of heaven. This might sound like bad news to some of you. It's actually good news. You're still going to be you in heaven. Get used to it. But grace is going to be so good and the resurrection of the body is going to be so good that for those of us who are never comfortable in our own skin and are always rattled and upset and don't feel comfortable, you're going to be comfortable and you're going to be filled with joy. The promise of heaven is so great and I think this is a little tangential. I'm pretty confident that when we're in heaven, you're going to have your memories of, of earth. You'll still be you. And you'll be able to think back when we were on this little spinning rock as eternity lies before us. God's grace and promise is so good that you will remember those very things that now cause you great shame and regret. But in the life to come, you will feel no shame about those things and no regret. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.